Hey, I'm Dan Monheit, co-founder of Hard Hat. And I'm Dr. Mel Weinberg. I'm a performance psychologist. And if you're listening to this, it's because you're interested in why we choose what we choose. Why we think what we think. And how to exploit this stuff for fun and commercial gain. Here we go again. Yeah, here we go again. Hey, Mel. Yeah, Dan. Couldn't help but notice this is our, like, I don't know, third, fourth episode now. And every time we come in here, being the gentleman that I am, I always let you in first. And for some reason, you always sit in that exact seat. And I was just wondering why that is. This spot? Yeah. It's my spot. Yeah, I know. I know you say it's your spot. But what what, what makes it your spot? Oh, it's the one that I always sit in. <laughs> right, you see how this does it. It's your spot because it's the one you always sit in because mm. it's your spot. Because it's my spot. Right. You calling me out for circular logic here <laughs> i mean it just seems weird right like we had the first show we recorded in i don't know 20 minutes 30 minutes so you sat on that piece of fabric once for 20 minutes and now it's yours until i don't know the end of time until somebody demolishes the studio and we build a new one and then maybe i can sit on that side you want my spot oh i really want it but i just think it's interesting that you have somehow assigned value to that i guess in the same way that you know when we go to sell our cars we always seem to for some reason think that they're worth a hell of a lot more than the people who want to buy them um, same is probably true for our houses as well. You know, for some reason, the person selling the house always seems to think they're going to get more for it, uh, unless you happen to live in Melbourne, um, than people seem to think they're going to be paying for it. So I think what, what I'm hearing is, uh, is, is that you're sort of describing what's known as the endowment effect. Um, it's one of those, uh, those heuristics that, uh, that we talk about often. It's the idea that we tend to ascribe more value to something simply because we own it. Like the reason that my spot is obviously better than, than your spot is because it's it, it's mine. And so basically, the more that the more that I feel a sense of ownership over this piece of real estate here on this couch, the more important it is to me, and the less willing I am to give it up for anything. So that's interesting. The longer you have it for, the less willing you are. Which I guess you know, if we think about things like our cars, which we spend a lot of time in, and we probably have all these wonderful memories of going on road trips on, and you know, we've got these sort of parts of ourselves assigned to these And you name, objects. some people name some their people cars. Some people name their cars, that'd be yeah. weird, but people do it, right? I guess the, the longer something is part of us and the more maybe it becomes part of our identity and that, that place on the couch is clearly a key part of your identity now, the, the more value we tend to ascribe to these things, yeah. even if they're just inanimate objects. Yeah, so hey, you know what? Uh, let me tell you about some research. Oh, research. Mel, <laughs> Dr. Mel coming with the research. I've got a study for you, would you believe it? Out of your back pocket. It's a study from uh, from the back pocket of the jeans I was wearing back in 1990 um, by uh, by some of our, our favourites, including um, including good old Danny Kahneman, and it was a study involving Cornell undergraduate students. And uh, what they did was they gave half of them some mugs Mugs, okay. like drinking Yeah, like mugs. coffee mugs. Yep. Yep. So they gave mugs to half of them and the other half didn't get any mugs. And then they asked both groups to place a value on how much these mugs were worth. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're making a, making a bit of a contrast here between what, willing, what people perhaps are willing to pay for the mugs. Mm-hmm. And for people with the mugs, it's about how much they're willing to accept for the mugs. And what, we, what they found was that the people who actually were given the mugs placed a much higher cost estimate on the value of those mugs than people who uh, weren't given the mugs. Okay, let me break this down. So you and I are both in this course, Cornell undergrads. Mm. You're in the lucky group of people that get a mug. I'm in the unlucky group of people that don't get mugs. Mm-hmm. Then they're like, how much do you reckon these mugs are worth? Yeah. 
I say, oh, this is a, I mean, this is this is a nice mug, and I'm holding it, and actually, I mean, it's it's my mug, so uh, uh, it's probably worth about five bucks. Right, and I'm like, well, I don't really see any value in that mug. Who cares? I reckon it's maybe worth, I don't know, two fifty, three. That's exactly what happened. And yep. that's what happened. Yep. So you thought it was worth more just because you had it. Same, same looking mug. The only difference was that I was given one and you weren't. Right. So, I mean, look, this, this seems weird, right? This seems weird that we would be somehow wired to assign value to something just because it's in our possession. It sounds like it would make us do kind of wacky things. Mm. But I guess, you know, if you take a long-term historical perspective on this, coming from a world of finite resources, you know, I like to talk about Caveman Dan, if we had to go out and hunt for something and kill it and bring it home, um, there's probably a lot of work in that. So it probably makes sense that we would have evolved to overvalue the stuff that we have over the things that we don't. Yeah, and in the same in in the same vein. So one of the one of the ways that we can explain this is through the concept of loss aversion, which is also um, also very popular in sort of the behavioural economics field. And it's the idea that once we have something, we really really don't want to lose it, and we're more motivated by the idea of not losing something than we are by the idea of actually gaining something. Right. So the old like bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that if we have it, we don't want to let it go. And if we don't have it, we don't actually care that much for it. Okay, that's interesting. It, it comes back to our motivation around um, and sort of how, how, how emotions play into the way that, uh, uh, the way that we think. So, I mean, all of this stuff is about how, how we don't, how everything is about how we feel rather than how we think at the end of the day. And one example of loss aversion is that if you lose ten dollars if so you lose ten dollars out of your pocket you're gonna be pretty upset right Mm -hmm. everybody everybody knows that feeling where you've just lost ten bucks i'm such an idiot (sighs) and and logically you know you think well if you get ten bucks back all right we're good i'm even even though your bank account might be even Mm -hmm. emotionally you're not emotionally you've gone out of whack because that loss of ten dollars was actually a lot stronger than finding it again and so what you actually need to come out emotionally even is actually to find 20 bucks. Right. To compensate for the lost 10. That's right. Wow. That's a recipe for disaster for mankind, <laughs> <Can be>. surely. <laughs> yep. Okay. So if we're going to just really put a ribbon around this, what we're saying is if we, tend, if we own a thing actually or even just perceptually, even just that we happen to sit on that chair for five minutes, if we feel some sense of ownership towards something, we are going to... Uh, ascribe more value to it than if we never owned it at all. Yeah, can you give me an example of how this might work in sort of the, in sort of your world? Oh well, I'm I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, academically or just intuitively, instinctively, businesses have realised this for a long, long time. That the quicker you can get somebody to feel like this thing is theirs, the better chance you've got of them actually buying it. So you know, if you look at things like real estate right we have open for inspections for a reason we want people to come in and see the house and you know you go to an open for inspection and they take away all the photos of the family that live there firstly because it's kind of weird but also it's much easier for you to imagine yourself in that home same thing with a you go to buy a car the first thing the sales guy wants to do right is give you an experience he wants to get you in the car going for a test drive so you can start imagining yourself driving to work or driving home or cruising around with friends in this exact car and even if you've only driven it for two or three minutes 15 minutes whatever it is 
it started to, to kind of weld itself to you and you start feeling some degree of ownership. You've imagined your future life together. It's pretty amazing how strong our imagination is for things like this. So back in the day, I used to work at, uh, I used to work at Sportsco. Let's go Sportsco. That's the one. And yep. we used to, uh, we used to sell, I used to sell running shoes, used to sell sneakers. That might've been where the, uh, where part of the obsession started. But um, what I used to do would be get a customer to try them on, right? And if you can get a customer to try it on, you're, you've basically made the sale. Because what happens when they try it on is that they start to walk around the store in it. And as they're walking around the store in it, they're imagining their future life with these shoes. I, my life is so good with these shoes. And they're imagining all the other outfits they can wear with mm-hmm. these shoes. They're imagining what events they're going to wear these shoes too. And so then for them to actually not make that purchase they not only deprives them of the shoes, but of all those future dreams that they had with this fantastic new pair of Air Force Ones. Got you. So that's one. The second way uh, businesses try to use this uh, is with the process of co-creation. So knowing that if they can get consumers to feel like they're actually contributing to the end product, they're going to ascribe ownership to it and therefore they're going to value it more. And there's a couple of really great examples of this. Number one is IKEA. So IKEA know that the fact that people spend whatever it is 89 bucks on a billy bookshelf they bring it home and then they invest two or three hours of themselves their own time and effort and cursing and tears if you're if you're me uh, in putting together your billy bookshelf you are just going to be so much more proud of it and you're going to value it so much more highly than if you just gone and bought a ready-made thing off the shelf and it results in people doing all sorts of crazy stuff like selling billy bookshelves on ebay for hundreds of dollars which makes no sense at all and i was even speaking to somebody last week who's being relocated overseas and they are taking their billy bookshelf with them the thing costs under 100 bucks and they probably sell them wherever the person's moving makes no sense at all the other great example of co-creation is the guys at Betty Crocker. So you guys know the, the cake people. And Betty Crocker know that if they can get people to feel like we, that we are really creating the cake with them and not just putting together a bunch of things they've assembled for us, we're going to be so much more proud of it. And they've realized that the, the minimum threshold for us feeling like we're contributing is cracking an egg. So even if everything else is in the box, if we crack the egg, we mix it in there, we are baking and now it feels like it's ours and man, this cake tastes so good and I'm so proud of it because I made that thing. I cracked that egg by hand. It's another example. Uh, It's reminding me of like sort of customizing products and Mm -hmm. personalizing shoes. So uh, we'll go back to to the good old Nike kicks as as an example Um, because one day, one day we'll get we'll get Phil Knight in the store, (laughs) in the studio, um, and then we'll get in his door. Um, But the idea is that uh, that if you can personalise a pair of shoes, right, everybody's got shoes and they come in all different colours, but if you can actually co-design them, if you can actually contribute to um, what colour those shoes are, what colour the swoosh is going to be, what colour every little piece of it is going to be, what colour the shoelaces are going to be, it's going to feel like yours. And if at the end you can chuck your initials on it um, and a number, then uh, then those shoes are ultimately yours. And I guess we're seeing that proliferate out everywhere from you know websites where you can spec up your own car and put your own wheels on and you can change the different tint of the windows through to even just being able to put your initials on a phone case or a, um, you know, a bag or a wallet. Yeah, that's it. It's happening. It's happening everywhere now. So, and I think we can move on to the next, the last one, which was the idea of a money back guarantee. Uh huh. Yeah. So we know all sorts of companies offer a money back guarantee these days for all sorts of things. And what they're really doing there, rather than giving you a sense of ownership or allowing you to co-create, they're actually feeding into this idea of loss aversion. So knowing that we don't like to 
lose out on anything, for example, our money to buy something, what they do is offer a money back guarantee, which says you don't actually need to worry about losing anything of yours to obtain this product. Mm. In fact, we're going to, if you're unhappy, you can have all of your money back. There's absolutely no reason to worry uh, or to feel to feel anything in respect to loss at all. You basically just described every infomercial ever made. <laughs> That's it. All right, so the three ways I guess companies are using this is one is around giving people an experience to get a sense of ownership, you know, free trial of the product, test drive, try it on, walk around, describe your life in this thing. The second is around co-creation. If we can get them to build it, they're going to value it more, they're going to love it. And the third is around de-risking um, the potential loss with things like money-back guarantees. Yep. Don't take my spot. I would not take your spot, and, and I, now I understand how much you value it. I don't even think I could afford to take that spot if I ever wanted to. No, I'm not selling it to you for anything. But to, to you guys, dear listeners, I mean, look, this show would be nothing without you all. You have contributed so much, and you should all be so proud of yourselves for the show that you've helped create here. Yeah, I mean, it really is It really is their show. I mean, we do it We do it for everybody, Yeah. not we? If, yeah. It's fun for us, but it's really... Mainly for the people. It's all for them. Yeah. So if you've got more questions about the endowment effect or loss aversion, you can hit us on Twitter. Uh, if you want the airy fairy academic stuff, you can get Mel. What you, what's your handle, Mel? Airy fairy at Dr. Mel W. So well researched stuff. You get Mel. Scientifically credible. Scientifically proven. She's wearing a lab coat right now. At, at Dr. Mel W. Is that Dr. Mel W. That's the one. Got you. Uh, or if you want to know the hard hitting business side of this stuff and uh, you know how to actually use it to sell more products and services, you can get me on Twitter as well. I'm uh, at Dan Monheit. It's M-O-N-H-E-I-T. And um, just in case you're wondering, that was Dan trying to sneak everybody into co-creating the show. No, it's not sneaky at all. You told me. Again, I'm going to put my ethical police on. Call the fun police. (laughs) Show's over. We're out. All right, we're done. (laughs)